0: Turn to 1 Peter 3, continuing through our, there we go, continuing through our family emphasis series. This is week four of six. Three weeks ago, husbands love your wives. Two weeks ago, wives submit to your husbands. Last week, husbands win your wife. This week, wife win your husband. As I exhorted wives two weeks ago into their primary responsibility in marriage, uh, which is biblical submission, uh, the idea was, uh, the scriptures tell us, that biblical submission to your husband is indeed biblical obedience to God. It goes without saying that if, if men were to love their wives properly, and if women were to submit to their husbands properly, Christian marriages would function with such tremendous success and tremendous joy. ...that the world around us would indeed be amazed and many would be convinced of the truth that otherwise might not be. Last Sunday morning, we turned our thoughts back to the husbands. We exhorted husbands on how you can not just love your wives, but, but how you can win your wives, truly encourage your wives... ...how you can make her truly happy in her role of submission by purposefully seeking to understand her needs and her desires... In a very real way and in doing so she will know a love and a peace and a security and a contentment which regardless of the direct circumstances within which your family finds itself will delight her soul and bring her into a place where she's not just following you because she's following Christ but she is truly following you because she wants to. In much the same way wives you have an opportunity to act toward your husband in such a way that will make him love to lead you, love to nurture you, love to be everything that God wants him to be for your marriage and your family. Husbands, you'll do this anyway because you love God. You will nurture your wife. You will care for your wife. You will think of your wife. You will win your wife. You'll do this because you love God. But, wives, when... You respond in turn. It makes it that much easier for your husband to do it. So that he will love you and nurture you and care for you because of you and not necessarily in spite of you. Last week as we spoke to husbands, one of the things that we talked about is is respecting your wife, caring for your wife, avoiding even in jest such labels that society has, has oftentimes given to wife. One of the examples that we gave was that label, the old ball and chain, right? And as we talked about that, we, we talked about the idea that husband, if, if you were to place that label upon your wife, when she is doing her best to submit and to love you and, and, and to, to do as she ought, really what that label tells her is that she's failing, right? What that label tells her is that where she is trying to do her best to facilitate you, to help you, to make you become everything that you can be, by calling her a ball and chain, you are literally saying you are doing the opposite of what you're trying to do, or what you're aspiring to do. And of course, most women wouldn't necessarily interpret it that way, but, but, but in reality, that's, that's what it means. And yet, as we consider that concept of being a ball and chain... Wife, It's an unfortunate reality that spiritually and emotionally speaking, even Christian wives can become exactly that. That even if you're not the type of, of woman who, who would seek to command her husband spiritually and emotionally, there are things you, you can do, tendencies that you could have that can drag him down. Spiritually, the way you treat your husband can turn you into a spiritual anchor, asking him to drag you through this life in spite of yourself and inhibiting him from becoming the leader and loving husband and father that he would otherwise desire to become. And so this morning we're going to talk about how to win your husband wives, how to treat him in such a way that loving you, leading you, providing for you becomes easier easier. And loving you with Christ-like love becomes what he wants to do, not just what he knows he needs to do. And just as we went to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, to speak to husbands about winning your wives, this week we go to 1 Peter 3, 1-6, to speak to wives about winning your husbands. And, and remember, as I preach this series, uh, I don't preach them, I'm going to use this term again, I talked to our children about it the other week, so hopefully you'll pick up on it now. This sermon is not preached in a vacuum. Right? Not the kind that cleans floors, children. The sermon is not preached in a vacuum. It's not preached to the exclusion of the other messages that I've given. Certainly, all of this works better when each of us is doing our part. It's perhaps interesting to note, as we get into 1 Peter chapter 3, the context within which we find the exhortation. In 1 Peter 2, Peter is exhorting the believers to live out their faith before an unbelieving world through separation and through personal obedience. Indeed, it is without question that the Bible teaches that how we convince the world of truth is by preaching the gospel and by living separated lives among them. And so we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. He exhorts the believers unto submission and obedience in various realms that he lives in this world, but he begins by saying, live free from the fleshly lust that would seek to destroy your soul, that war against your soul. And then he says in verses 13 and 14, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So as he's exhorting us unto this life of obedience, this life of of a proper testimony of separation, he first says, Christian, submit yourselves to human leadership, to every ordinance, whether that's king, or whether that's governors, as they fulfill their role of protecting the good and punishing the evil, you submit yourself unto them. And then as we we continue in the context in verses 18 and 19, he then applies it to the servant-master relationship. What we would call today the employee-employer relationship. And he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only unto the good and gentle, but also unto the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And, And we understand even more about the context here. Peter's not just talking about submitting yourself to good people, right? Not just good governments, not just good bosses, but even those who are, as he says here, froward. Those that are not good, those that are not kind, those that are not doing what they ought. Why? Because when a man for conscience sake endures grief, but yet keeps a right testimony before God, God is pleased. And the conclusion... Uh, to this chapter, as Peter continues his teaching, it's not really a conclusion because it continues right along in 1 Peter 3, but he says this in 1 Peter 2.21, For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. When we are under poor leaders in this world, and we submit ourselves unto them, we are living out Christ's testimony. Is that not what he did? Did he not come into a world, submit himself to human government, submit himself to to the expectations of the, the Jewish law, the expectations of the Roman law, and he suffered and he was persecuted and he was spoken of wrongfully and he was mistreated and he was mischaracterized. And even as Christ suffered for us wrongfully, being called a sinner, being called a A a, a lawbreaker, enduring the contradiction of sinners, as the scriptures tell us. Yet having done nothing wrong, he suffered and the Lord was pleased. Peter reminds us that when you are in a situation which is not ideal, and you have an authority figure who is not doing what is best for you, and you submit yourself anyway, God is pleased. Now, it is explicitly within this context that Peter then turns his exhortation toward wives. Don't let the chapter break fool you, throw you off. Sometimes those chapter breaks are not divinely inspired. And sometimes they can do a little bit more to hinder our understanding of flow than they can to help. And in this case, Peter goes, he says, submit to government, submit to boss, your, your master, and then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if they obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Wives, do you remember two weeks ago in my introduction to the message on submission, I told you that, though I couldn't cite a definitive reason why the Lord chose in, in his wisdom to always put the women's submission, the exhortation for women to submit prior to the exhortation for men to love in the scriptures. He does it in Ephesians. He does it here in 1 Peter. That while I I don't have a definitive reason why that is the case, I have a theory. And my theory is that as, as a woman, in the role of submission, you have a tremendous capacity to influence the spiritual direction of your marriage, and of your home through this very element of submission. So much so that it's put first in the text. This passage is why I believe that. 1 Peter 3, 1, we see that as you live out the submission which the word of God commands you, you can, without the word, without saying anything, win your husband to the truth by your conversation. You say, without the word, with your conversation. Well, conversation is a word that doesn't just mean what we say. Conversation is our conduct. It's the whole of how we deport ourselves. And here it is contrasted with speaking. And it's apparent that what Peter is telling us here is that your actions, wives, can do more to influence your husband than your words ever could. And specifically, as Peter describes it, your submissive actions and your submissive spirit can do more to influence your husbands than your words ever could. And let's keep this within the context that we find it. The context is Christian citizens submitting to oppressive governments, Christian servants submitting to oppressive masters, and then potentially Christian wives submitting to oppressive husbands. Wives and husbands... We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that your obligation towards your spouse is completely independent of your spouse's actions. When you stood up at the altar and you said, I do, you were vowing 100% to him, he was vowing 100% to you. It was not a conditional vow, it was an unconditional vow. I will give you 100% regardless, you will give me 100% regardless. But... The nature of that transaction, as the Bible teaches it, is that regardless of whether or not your spouse does his or her part, you do your part. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. I'll do my part, you do your part. If you do more, I'll do more. If you do less, I'll do less. Marriage is a 100-100 proposition. I do my part regardless of you. You do your part regardless of me. That's what the scriptures teach. Unless we assume that wives are only obligated to be submissive to good husbands, to godly husbands, the context of 1 Peter 3 actually emphasizes the exact opposite, doesn't it? That the need for a wife to submit to her husband is just as needful, and by the way, even more effective spiritually, among ungodly husbands. Now, it's our desire, of course... Wives, it's my desire for you that you would never have to be put in a situation where you are following a man that is not following the Lord. Where you are having to deal with a man who, who has no regard for the things of God. But if you do end up there, your obligation to submission is no less necessary. As a matter of fact, it will become even more necessary because of the circumstances. Because of the situation in which you find yourself. And it is just as important to God. Women, when you submit to your husband, one who is treating you without care, love, or concern, without a man who is not doing what you are entitled unto in Christ, you communicate the truth of the word of God to your husband in a way words never could. And we'll talk about why that is toward our application today. And women, this, this is a difficult concept to believe, right? And it's one that the church has all but forsaken in many, in many contexts. I've interacted with a lot of marriage counseling situations. And, and the majority of, of what I do in marriage counseling thus far in my career has been cleanup. Has been correction. Has been taking that which other pastors have said, going to the Bible and saying, Well, what the pastor just told you is not what the Bible says. No, you can't just leave him because he's not doing his part. No, you can't just treat him bad because he's not doing his part. That's not what the Bible says. And that's a difficult concept to believe, particularly in this age in which we live. That more can be done through keeping your mouth shut and submitting yourself to your husband than can be done through vocally expressing your views, your disagreements, your perspectives. And just like the broader concept of submission, the only thing I can tell you is that this is what the Bible says. And I can guarantee you that if you do it God's way, it will be best for you. And it will be best for your marriage. Regardless of what society says, regardless of what perception might lend itself unto, if you do it God's way, if you do what God's word tells you, it will be best for you. Every time. So what is this conversation? This conversation that can win the husband without words. Well... We learn of this in the remainder of the verse. Beginning of verse 2, the scriptures tell us this. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Your chaste conversation coupled with fear. There are two concepts uh, here which we're going to address in order. The first being this idea of chaste conversation or chaste conduct. The second being this concept of being coupled with fear. The word translated chaste here is a word which means clean, pure uncontaminated it speaks regularly of that which is morally pure morally upright and in this case uh, there's really no difference there's no reason to take it outside of that context the type of conduct which can win a husband is as you deport yourself as a woman of high moral character and high moral integrity a woman we would say of virtue and when we consider a woman of virtue we've not really gone there yet Uh, In our series, but as we consider a woman of virtue, the text which we should always be drawn unto is Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, we see teaching on a woman of virtue, with her being presented as a woman of initiative, a woman of industry, a woman of work ethic, a woman of leadership. But, But there are two sections I would like to highlight within the teaching of Proverbs 31 that are directly applicable to what 1 Peter 3 is talking about. And the first is right at the beginning of the Proverbs 31 teaching on the virtuous woman. In verses 10 through 12 of Proverbs 31, we read this. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. The virtuous woman is a woman whose husband can fully trust her to act in his best interests because he knows without question that she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. It's a man who can relax when it comes to delegating unto his wife, when it comes to his wife making decisions, when it comes to what his wife is doing with her time, because he knows that what she is doing is in his best interests. A wife of virtuous conduct is a wife who will be constantly seeking her husband's best good. She's a wife whose husband never needs to worry whether or not the decisions his wife will make will will help him or break him or undermine him because her decisions will always be with him in mind. But the second section of interest, the second highlight I'd like to give you from Proverbs 31 is more to the point of what we read in 1 Peter 3. Found in verse 30, the scriptures tell us this. Proverbs 31:30 30, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. The virtuous woman is a woman whose priority and effort is placed into her character. Where does her priority lie? It lies in her character. Now, this is not to say a virtuous woman needs to be an ugly woman, right? We know that. But much rather, regardless of her appearance, the virtuous woman will be a woman of stellar character and at the risk of sounding simplistic, she'll be a woman of tremendous virtue. And as we return to 1 Peter 3, consider how Peter describes this woman in verses 3 and 4. He says, "Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of hair and of wearing of apparel, of, of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, the woman, this is this is describing the woman of chaste conversation, the wife who is adorned with virtue. The concept of adornment, this is really interesting. In the text, the word adornment is actually the word regularly translated world. It's the word cosmos. It speaks of the orderly arrangement of of things, Just as God has orderly arranged the universe and this creation, uh, Peter says, let her orderly arrangement be that of a meek and quiet spirit. As it pertains to a person, specifically in this case a wife, the message is that the external distinctive of a wife, that which defines how her husband and the world around her sees her, should be driven by how she acts, not how she looks. The ornaments which should adorn a woman are to be the ornaments of meekness and a spirit which seeks to be quiet. Now, in this passage, the contrast is with a woman whose priority rests upon her appearance. Peter contrasts a woman whose priority is meekness with a woman whose priority is placed on hair, jewelry, and clothing. That the woman who throws herself into a materially looking a certain way, keeping up pretenses, having an appearance of such, is a woman who has the wrong priorities in place. That when a person looks at a woman, it ought not be her hair or her jewelry or her her clothing, her outward adornment that stands out. When a person looks at you as a wife, you as a woman, what ought to bubble up to the surface, what ought to become apparent quickly, what ought to be immediately or most obviously apparent is your virtue. That's what the scriptures are saying. It's not saying that women aren't supposed to look nice. But it is to say that a woman who is overly concerned with the accessories of appearance to the expense of her character has a spiritual imbalance. Or if I may put it this way, Any woman who gauges her worth and merit as a woman by how she looks has a spiritual imbalance. There's another concept that can be equally applied in relation to the character of a woman. As Peter here specifically contrasts the priority of a woman who has outward appearance as her priority and that of a woman who has inward character as her priority... So too, we can contrast the negative character that we see, the warnings of negative character in the scripture against this passage of scripture. The wife is supposed to adorn herself here with meekness and a quiet spirit. And what is the inward contrast to a meek and quiet spirit? Well, it's a loud and boisterous woman. Consider several verses in the Proverbs with me about this. Proverbs 29, 21, verse 9 says, It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Proverbs 25, 24. It is better, if you, if you notice, they're the same. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Same verse twice. When the same verse is repeated twice, you know the scriptures mean something. They're, they're, they're trying to, to, to emphasize something. Continue. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. have you ever had like a hole in your gutter and you've been lying in bed with the window open and you just hear drip, 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 and you can't sleep because you've got this drip outside your window? That's what a contentious woman is like. The message of all of these verses is the same. Loud, boisterous, contentious, argumentative, angry, opinionated, naggy, bossy, nosy women are the exact opposite of virtue. That is exactly the opposite of what a woman ought to be. stands in direct contrast to the woman being spoken of in 1 Peter 3. A text which tells us specifically that a woman who adorns herself in meekness, that woman literally meaning... That, that word, meekness, literally meaning strength under control. It's not that she's a weak woman, it's that she is under control. She has diverted her abilities, her strength, her, her integrity, her virtue, her, her, her capacities toward submission in her husband. This woman who adorns herself with meekness and with a spirit of quietness and submission is a woman who is of great price in the sight of God. This will be our last point, but remember women. That's what this is about. I'm not here telling you this so that I can see all of our women women brought low. I'm not here telling you this so that the men in this church can be at personal advantage over you. Look, I'm telling you what God sees as valuable. What God loves. And what we know is that if we align ourselves with what God loves... If we align ourselves with God's design, it will be best. It will be best for you every time. So though we are talking today about winning your husband, your, your husbands are only partially in play here. Because really what I'm calling you unto is obedience to God. And, and in doing what pleases God, you will also do what's best for you. So we consider the first half of verse 2. Chase conversation. This is a woman of virtue, a woman of a meek and quiet spirit. This is a woman who is the opposite of that, all of those warnings in, in Proverbs 21 and 27. And the second concept that we find here is that of fear. That the chaste conversation of the wife, exemplified in true virtue, is to be coupled with fear. The word here is, is, is the word in, in the originals fear, fright, or terror. But To we who have studied the scriptures, you understand how the scriptures use this word. It's the same word that's used when we talk about fearing God or fearing the king. And it's the idea of having a reverence or a respect unto. A proper reverence or respect toward another. Sometimes this is a proper reverence or respect because of their power. Other times it's because of their position. In God's case, it's both. In man's case, in, in your husband's case, you fear him out of the position that he has. You give him the proper reverence and respect that is due unto him because of the position that he has been given over you. This is headship. The wife is intended to fear her husband, not that, that your, your husband ought to be instilling fear in you. Not that you should be afraid of your husband. Husbands, if your wife is afraid for you to come home, if your wife is afraid that you might come home, and things didn't go well that day, if she fears you in that regard, if she if she's afraid of you in that way, that she's, she's afraid of your temper, she's afraid of your violence, you've got a real problem that you need to solve biblically, because that is not biblical. That's not the idea of fear here. You should not be instilling terror in your wife in any way. The idea here is reverence, proper reverence or respect that comes due to your position. Wives, act toward your husband in a manner which is appropriate to the position which God has given him over you in the marriage and in the home. It's the same way that you would talk to your boss or way you might not talk to your boss. Not because you fear that your boss is going to have some violent fit against you, but but because you understand his position of authority and you understand his capacity that he's been given over you. It's the same thing that we might consider in, in any context, whether it's a sports context or a military context. There's a fear that man has, a reverence, a respect for those who are in a position over him. Wives, fear your husbands. And as we consider this, it's highlighted, it's, it's um, uh, explained in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter 3. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Notice how Peter describes a wife's chaste conversation coupled with fear among the holy women. A holy woman adorns herself with subjection. Why? Who trusted in God. She adorns herself with subjection because she trusts God. God has placed me under him. I trust God. I'm going to live under him. Once again, wives, we remind ourselves, this isn't about you, and this really isn't about your husband. This is about, it's not about what you're capable of. It's not about who your husband is, how worthy he is. It's about trusting God. And Peter specifically references Sarah here, and her obedience to Abraham, calling him Lord, This is that fear. This is that respect of his position. She did not call him Lord in seeking to put him in place of God, nor did she call him in Lord necessarily because he always earned or deserved the title, right? Abraham did some pretty unfortunate things in his days. He didn't always make right decisions, but that wasn't the operative issue here. The operative issue is that he was her husband. Therefore, she, trusting God, Called him Lord. Now, today that may not be explicitly the direction you want to go. You walk around the house calling your husband Lord. That that might be, you know, people wouldn't understand. Uh, even if you two had an agreement, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. That would be a little bit awkward. But the concept is valid. He is the head of the home. He is your leader. Your protector, your provider, delegated by God, given to you, he's your Lord in the sense of that word. Sarah acted toward her husband with the utmost respect, even though many of Abraham's actions were not worthy of that respect because she trusted God. And Peter mentions that you too will be counted among faithful holy women, wives, if you do well. And then we find this phrase, and are not afraid with any amazement. That's kind of an interesting phrase. There's some disagreement as to what it means. The Greek doesn't necessarily clarify it entirely. But I believe the idea here is that the virtuous and holy woman is a woman who does not yield to fear. If you are not afraid with any amazement, if you don't yield to fear, well, what, what, what does that mean? You just told us, Peter, that wives are supposed to fear their husbands. Uh, what, what, what does it mean, then, that you're not afraid? Well, what is it that a wife would be afraid of if she submits herself to her husband? Well, allowing your husband to lead and the vulnerability of being in his hands, right? We've already read what the Bible says. It isn't ambiguous. Your, your husband, wives, is entitled to your submission, your respect, but but there will be some wives here who because of the vulnerable posi- position that that puts you in the vulnerable position that that puts you in it's going to be a real struggle for you there will be some who are afraid to give up that control and they will desire to maintain it and that's the idea here the holy women of old understood headship and they submitted themselves to their husbands and you will be one of those faithful holy women If you do not succumb to the fear of submitting to your husband. As we apply this morning, I'd like to apply with four points. Wives, we've seen this passage laid out. Much of it has had to do with submission, but but we've seen some other concepts here which I'd like to highlight. Four points that will help you win your husband. Point number one, wives, submission will do more to influence your husband than nagging ever will. Submission will do more to win your husband than nagging ever will. We already read about the drippy faucet, right? Let's consider that again. Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. A nagging, contentious wife is extremely tedious. It's an emotional tax upon a man. And wives, when you nag your husband, constantly reminding him to do things the way you think they should be done, even if they're things you think are good, reading the Bible every day or going to church, those sorts of things, if you nag your husband when you think something should be done or to get something done the way you think it should be done, you are going to deeply discourage your husband. But more than that, you are at the same time revealing a lack of trust toward your husband and also toward God. Wives, it will not come natural, and you might even argue that nagging can indeed get things done. I know it can. I've seen it. But, on the authority of God's word, a meek and quiet spirit of submissive yieldedness will do more to influence your husband than any amount of nagging ever will. Nagging is a destructive action which tears down your husband emotionally rather than building him up. It discourages him rather than encouraging him. It says you don't trust God to guide your husband in his actions and his decisions, and so you are going to take that responsibility into your own hands. Nagging is disrespectful. Nagging is unbecoming. And it reflects a woman in a very poor light. And how your husband will respond to nagging is different depending upon his personality some husbands will be they'll be cowed. They will lose their independent spirit. They'll look to their wives to lead them, their wives for permission to act. And wives, if you've been with us for this series and you understand the husband's responsibility and his accountability before God, you don't want him to look to you for leadership. You don't. You know that. Some husbands will become resentful. They'll give in in order to keep peace, but they will lose the love and respect that they might otherwise have for their wives, it will make it so much harder for them to love and nurture you. And wives, you don't want that. Some husbands will become defiant. They'll instead do exactly what you don't want them to do every time, just to let you know who's in charge. And in doing so, there will be a rift, an emotional fellowship rift between you and your husband. Wives, you don't want that. Some husbands will become distant and they'll just say, honey, I've got a couple extra hours of work to do tonight. I'll be home late and it's going to become a trend and they're going to go out and do this and go out and do that and, and they're going to become distant. They're going to, they're not going to want to be at home because they know that when they're at home, they have to deal with you. There's no situation where being that drippy faucet, nagging your husband, will produce the outcome spiritually and emotionally that will benefit you in your marriage. It might get him to do the thing you want him to do once, twice, it might even continue, but it will not result in the spiritual and emotional success that you want for your marriage. On the contrary, and on the authority of God's word, when you yield your right to nag your husband to God and allow God to work on your husband, you will do more to win him than any amount of nagging ever will. Husbands can probably testify to this fact. Have you ever, your wife has asked you to do something or it's something you know needs to get done, and your wife just does her part and she does it well, and you see her doing her part, and you see her and she's she's living out virtuously, and Every time that comes to mind, whether it's you're forgetting or whether you're ignoring it, it, it's a struggle for you because you know you ought to be doing something different and you're not. And a man begins to carry that burden around, that he's not doing his part. His wife is doing such a great job and he's not doing his part. Wives, you felt that too, right? Where you've not been doing your part and your husband has been doing a stellar job, and there's just this conviction that says, I am failing, I'm not doing my part. And that's the Holy Spirit reminding you of your duty. Husband, do you trust God enough that if something needs to get done and you inform your husband and and it's not getting done, do you trust God enough that instead of nagging your husband, you go to God and say, hey God, the husband you gave me is not doing his part. Your problem, will you take care of it? Could you trust God enough to do that? Do you trust that the Holy Spirit of God can work in your husband enough to say that if something needs to get done or something needs to happen in your home, whether it's You know, husband, I'd really like to have our children reading the Bible together as a family every day. And husband says, okay, he hears it. Can you trust at that point just to take it to God and say, God, will you convict his heart that the Bible needs to be read in our family together every day? And then just leave it with God? And trust the Holy Spirit to do the work? Could you imagine if you had a pastor who treated you the way some wives treat their husbands? That until I see the change I want, I'm going to preach the same thing every week. I'm going to go to the same passage every week and preach it until I see the change that I want. I'm not going to trust the Holy Spirit to work in you and your time and in his way. I'm, go- I'm going to be your Holy Spirit and I'm going to tell you this is a problem in you. And I'm going to keep hitting you over the head with it until you change. And we'd have no one here. I don't even know if my family would come. It'd be empty seats. To our husbands? Can you trust the Holy Spirit to do that work in Him? If it's right and if it's necessary, can you trust God to bring it to His mind, to convict Him to do it? God, the husband you gave me is making bad choices. Would you help him? Would you convict him? He's being negligent. Would you remind him? Can you trust God? Isn't that what verse 5 says the holy women of old did? Called him Lord, trusting God? Point number two. First point, submission will do more to influence your husband than nagging ever will. Number two, wives, win your husbands. A quiet spirit is a virtue, not a sign of weakness. We live in an age overtaken, a culture at least, overtaken by what is known as third wave feminism. It's the third wave wave of feministic zeal that we've seen over the course of better than 100 years now since the suffrage movement. Third wave feminism is when the desire for women to be treated with respect and dignity merges with cultural Marxism and becomes a grotesque hybrid of the politics of statism and the religion of humanism. It's this awful, terrible movement that's not about equal rights or respect or dignity. It's about female dominance, it's about indignity, it's about moral depravity, it's about spiritual evil. It is, everything, it, it is about taking every principle of femininity in this book and turning it on his head and dragging it through the mud, chopping it up into little pieces, and leaving it to die. That is what modern feminism is. The world will tell you wives that a meek and quiet spirit is a sign of weakness. It's a remnant of the patriarchy. It's misogyny in its worst form. You are allowing your husband to walk all over you. They'll use words like spousal abuse, that if your husband expects you to obey him, he is abusing you. I've heard it. I've heard it in counseling. They'll recoil in horror when you state that your goal in life is to meet the goals of your husband. They will call you defeated. They will call you broken you of becoming a robot to be commanded rather than a woman of independence and none of it is true you are not dominated you are being obedient to God you have identified the role that God has made for you and you have put yourself in it and it's the best place to be and by the way it's the happiest place to be the most contented place to be you're not defeated wife you are virtuous you have not lost your independence. You have yielded to a higher calling. What this world calls indignity, God says, it's of great price to me. And look, if you're going to please this group of feminists who can't be pleased anyway, or you're going to please the God of the universe who created you, sustains you, and has offered you a home in heaven, it's not really a competition. Please God. If God says it's of great price, then it's worth it. Christians have since the beginning of the church been the target of incessant slander. Have we not? All the way. The, the term Christian was a slanderous term. They were called Christians first at Antioch and it was a slander to them. It was intended to be a mocking term. Little Christs. Those little Christs walking around. Oh, little Christians. And the Christians appropriated it and said, We like that. I'll, I'll be called little Christ any day of the week. Right? Jesus was slandered for obedience to the word of God. He was charged with. Uh, accused of being. A violent overthrower of the Roman government. Paul was slandered for the obedience of the word of God. He was charged with being disobedient to government. The early church was slandered for obedience to the word of God. In many ways, Nero blamed them for the burning of Rome. Started a massive persecution. In every generation of the martyred church, The statements and actions of the church have been slandered in order to give wicked men reason to destroy truth. Should it be any different today? Should we expect it to be any different today? That when women, when you stand in virtue, it will be called, it will be slandered among the world? Should that surprise anyone in this room? When we study church history, when we study the book of Acts, when we look at the word of God, should it surprise anyone in this room? That the things that God's Word tells us to do are going to be slandered, misappropriated, misrepresented among them? Our obedience to the biblical definition of marriage is called bigotry. Our obedience to the biblical definition of child discipline is called abuse. Our obedience to the biblical definition of sin is called hate speech. Why should it be, then, that your obedience to the biblical definition of femininity would not be called something slanderous? Expect it, wives. I said, if the world hates you, know they hated me first. Stop listening to the world and just keep listening to God. Come to this group of people and be affirmed in the truth. Find this oasis that will remind you that you know what you're doing, what's right in the eyes of God. And then go out in the world and and fight that battle in the delight of knowing that even if you are displeasing the world around you, you are pleasing the only one that matters. And that's not me, and that's not even your husband, it's God. And so we read, one chapter previously in First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, "...having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation." So all the the neighborhood ladies are standing around and they're all gossiping about their husbands and slandering them. And he makes me do this and he's that and I made him do this and uh, I'm not going to let him do that again. And you just say, I obey my husband. I I do what's right. I submit to him. He's my leader. I love him. Uh, He supports me. I'm so thankful for him. And they look at you cross-eyed and they start to tell you how you're abused and how your husband is mistreating you. And how you've been deceived. And, well, soon enough, they're just going to stop inviting you. So that problem will solve itself. But don't listen to it. Because you don't have to please the women in the neighborhood, but 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 you do want to please God. See, that's how the world works. They speak against you as an evildoer. But you know what can show them? testimony of truth can do more than a hundred gospel tracts ever could. Don't be surprised when the world rejects biblical femininity. Don't be discouraged by it. Just rest in the confidence that you're pleasing God. Number three, respect will do more to influence your husband than criticism ever will. Respect will do more to please your husband than criticism ever will. What wives, you need to stop criticizing your husband. Like with nagging, criticism is a carnal attempt at motivating him. If you make your husband feel like less of a man, you can inspire him to step up and meet your expectations. Wives, men need to know that you respect them. Like with Sarah, who called Abraham Lord, not because he always was worthy of it, but because she was going to show him respect, your husband needs your respect. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we mentioned to wives the advantage that you have that you're not the one to make decisions for your family? That you have this real advantage that when you stand before the Lord one day, you will answer for whether or not you've submitted, not not, not for the decisions that have been made? Well, you know what? Your husband is responsible for those decisions. Your husband bears some major burdens, wives. He bears some major responsibilities. He will stand before God and he will answer for you and he will answer for his children. That's some major responsibility. He knows full well that he doesn't always make right decisions. Think if I asked for a show of hands, there wouldn't be one man who who would say, yeah, I always make the right decision because we don't. But we have to live with the wrong decisions as much as we have to live with the right ones to make those decisions. And sometimes we have to make them on the spot. Sometimes we have time to pray about them, but we have to live with the decisions we have made. And you know what can take an otherwise strong man desiring to do what is right for his family and break him? A wife who doesn't respect his efforts. A wife who tears him down for his poor choices. A wife who ignores what he's trying to do. A wife who fails to respect your husband. Maybe your husband isn't the greatest leader. Maybe your husband isn't the best money manager. Maybe he isn't the neatest. Maybe there are socks lying around. Maybe the toilet seat is left up. Maybe your husband isn't the best at this or that, that fill in the blank. But your husband is your husband and he's entitled to you. When he has your respect, do you know it's going to give him a confidence to lead, lead the family? When he has your respect, he can know that even if he comes home and he didn't make the right decision that day, he is coming home to a woman who is behind him, to the loyalty and love of his wife, and that will get him through. That even if he got bombarded today, he can come home to an oasis of rest, of someone who will love him regardless right? Isn't that why we like dogs? Not all of you like dogs. That's a bad example, huh? Isn't that why some of you like dogs? Maybe cats. I don't know. Cats don't really do this all that often. Maybe some do, right? You come home to your animal and your animal doesn't care whether or not you failed the test. Your animal doesn't care whether or not your boss yelled at you. Your animal doesn't care whether or not you just wrecked the car. The the tail's going to be wagging or the cat's going to lift an eyebrow or, you know, you're, you're going to be acknowledged. They love you. They, it's unconditional. They don't care about your circumstances. Well, when a husband can come home to a wife who loves him, who respects him, who w- w- will stand with him, can really, really encourage him. And when a man facing tough decisions and maybe even failing in some of them does not have a good woman behind him respecting him and loving him in spite of it all, it it, it might just break him. Wives, this is both a passive and an active goal. Passively, you respect your husband by never, ever speaking ill of him to anyone. Not to your mom, not to your sister, not to your friend, not to your children. You don't speak ill of your husband. You don't berate him. You don't speak ill to him. Passively, you just don't, don't speak wrongly of him. Actively, you respect your husband by telling him so, by affirming him. Even if you can't affirm his decisions, you may not agree with all of his decisions, but you know what you can affirm? His leadership. You can can affirm his leadership without affirming his decisions, right? You can stand by his side, especially in the tough times. You can encourage him. And just as you, wife, need to feel safe and secure in order to be truly content in your marriage talked about last week when hu- talked about husbands winning your wives. Your husband needs to feel respected, wives. And when he feels your respect, you'll win him. You'll win him. And when you have won him, you will make it much easier for him to love you the way you want to be loved. Fourth and finally. Not about you. This is about God, His Word, and His testimony in the world. Said it already, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna keep reiterating the point. But I wanted to get it in writing in case you're writing these down. This is not about you. It's not about your husband. It's not about whether he is worthy. This is about whether or not you are ready and willing to do what God asks you to do. Whether or not you're ready to do what's right. And you know what's the greatest thing about God? said it many times before, is that when when you, God, God tells us what to do, he enables us to do it through his Holy Spirit, he gives us every ability to do it, and then when we do what he's told us to do, and he's enabled us to do, guess what he does, he blesses us for it, isn't that amazing, wise, if you will do what God has told you to do, and enabled you to do, and designed you to do. find that happiness